host, Johanna Ruddy. On this weekly series, Dr. Drossman and I are frequently joined by guests as we discuss disorders of gut-brain interaction, their diagnosis and treatment, and of course, patient-provider communication skills, trainings, and tips that are helpful for patients and doctors alike. Thanks for joining us. Hi everyone, welcome to another question and answer session with Dr. Drossman and myself. Today we're joined by another special guest. We're joined by Dr. William Che, who as you know, is a member of the Rome Foundation Board of Directors and a part of the Rome Five Editorial Board amongst many other things. And we're gonna to talk to him today about some mega trends in GI. So we're excited to delve right in. Hi, Dr. Drossman and hello to you, Dr. Che. Hi, hi, Bill. Uh, great to see you here. Um, Bill is a long-term friend going back 25 years or so, uh, who has really carved the way in many areas of GI and in particular, although I remember things like H. pylori, but we're moving now to nutrition and integrated medicine. We're going to hear about that today. Bill was honored to be a keynote uh, speaker uh, at the, uh, was the American Journal of Gastroenterology lecture? Uh, American College of Gastroenterology. <clears throat> I thought it was the AGGO, but it was the American College lectureship. And he's, the title was The End of the Beginning, uh, the uh, Megatrends in GI. Uh, Bill is Professor of Medicine and Nutrition at Michigan Medicine in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Um, the topic covered, uh, the, the presentation covered four major innovations, perhaps in the last decade, uh, the emerging role of nutrition, uh, the behavioral, the advancement in behavioral strategies, the concept of integrated care, and then moving to get, putting it all together, digital health. So Bill, why don't we start by telling me how you got inspired to give this presentation? Well, first of all, I, I really have to thank the college for inviting me to give the, the Burke lecture this year. Um, it's quite an honor. And uh, ironically, um, you know, when I look back and at, at the people that have given the lecture, my, my own father actually also gave the Burke lecture many years ago. But um, the inspiration, or I thought a lot about what to talk about with this platform. And, you know, near and dear to my own heart, as you pointed out, has been um, really advocating for the importance of non-medical therapies for medical conditions. And I really focused on IBS, irritable bowel syndrome, because that's where, at least in the areas that I focus, the greatest amount of literature, the greatest amount of science actually exists at the current time. In fact, um, when you talk about those four different megatrends, two of them are, you could argue, aren't even that controversial anymore, really, if you think about nutrition and behavioral um, interventions. They're increasingly accepted as on equal footing to medical therapies. I think really, if you look at almost all of the major medical centers across the United States now at this point, they've all embraced the idea that a full service uh, disorders of gut brain interaction group should not only order ex or should, should not only offer expert advice regarding the right medication, but uh, the right diet intervention, the right behavioral health intervention. Um, so the inspiration was really 
to talk about these things, not so to use IBS as an example, but to, to create this recognition around the fact that nutrition and behavioral health are really platform technologies that can be applicable to virtually any aspect of gastroenterology. If you think about it conceptually, uh, nutrition and behavioral health are really somewhat agnostic in terms of their potential benefits to virtually everything we do in gastroenterology and, and hepatology as well. So um, I wanted to make sure that I highlighted that and showed the very convincing evidence that now exists for both of those interventions in patients with, with IBS. And as you mentioned, what, what I really wanted to do as part of this talk as well was to make sure that we broke down the silos. That is to not think about these different treatment um, approaches as independent variables, you know, so diet, behavior, medications, because of course, scientifically, that's how we have to study them to prove efficacy. But in real life, they're really overlapping circles on a Venn diagram, aren't they? You know, is that to some, to a large extent, um, patient A may require uh, one or two of these interventions. Patient B might require uh, two or three, all of them uh, together. And, you know, I, I didn't have time to really even talk about complementary alternative medicine, but that's another part of the Venn diagram as well. Um, and then the last thing that you mentioned, digital health uh, really provides a mechanism by which to scale integrated care, because, you know, I, I've actually been talking about this now for many years, as you know, Doug, and it's, it's wonderful to see this all coming to fruition. But invariably, as I've talked about it now for many years, People will come up afterwards and go, you know what? I totally believe everything you said about diet and behavioral and behavior. The problem is I have no way to be able to implement this in my actual practice. There's no, I don't have a GI dietitian. I certainly don't have a, a GI psychologist. And so digital, digital health, digital therapeutics, that is a mobile app-based solutions um, are going to be one of the primary ways in which to scale integrated care. And, you know, that was the punchline of my talk. And to me is one of the most exciting things that's happening in medicine at the current time. Well, let's break that down because I think there are innovations in all three areas leading up to digital health. Uh, when I was on the wards at UNC, someone would come in malnourished and we'd get a dietary consult. And they'd come in, leave a note, and that was it. So what is it like now? How have things changed? Things have changed tremendously, and things will change even more in, over the next few years. So right now, the 800-pound gorilla in terms of nutrition interventions for patients with IBS anyway is the low FODMAP diet. And the low FODMAP diet is such an interesting story because um, it met with an incredible amount of resistance when the concept first started to float around. Um, and over time, I think as people have tried it in their own practices, they've come to realize how well it works for some people. You know, it doesn't work for everybody. It's not a silver bullet. In fact, none of the therapies that we have for IBS are a silver bullet. But for some patients, it can profoundly lead to symptom improvement, improvements in quality of life. But 
the key about the low FODMAP diet in my mind is the way it's kicked the door open for diet therapies as a solution to IBS. I mean, think about where we've come from when we first started talking about the low FODMAP diet. Oh, it's another fad diet. It's never going to prove to be beneficial. Then as the study started to accumulate, showing that it does offer benefit to some patients, um, people started to use it in their own practices. Uh, and gradually now, if anything, I think the low FODMAP diet is probably overused in rather than underused. And when I say overused, I, I, what I really mean by that is done poorly. In other words, is not done um, standing up to that uh, to that uh, state-of-the-art three phases of the low FODMAP diet program. So restriction, reintroduction, personalization. Um, right. You know, and, and a lot of that has to do with the lack of training on the part of gastroenterologists in terms of the nitty-gritty details and a, a lack of access to fully trained GI dietitians. So um, I think that's something that you brought into the field was, uh, I mean, it's overused because people just say get a low FODMAP diet but you're bringing it in as an interaction with the patient and with the doctor as well, by the three programs, step program. Yeah. And, and not unlike behavioral therapy, right? I mean, it's very similar. It's not like you can, it's not like as a gastroenterologist, you can meaningfully do CBT or gut directed hypnosis in your, in your office. I mean, you really need a partner to help you to be able to deliver that in an effective medically responsible way. Um, and you know, we just finished Kate Scarlotta and I are, and Shanti S. Warren are just publishing a paper in the Red Journal. Um, it's a survey of several hundred members of the American College of Gastroenterology asking about their accessibility to a GI dietitian. And um, around 40% of gastroenterologists that responded to the survey actually don't have access to a GI dietitian. So there's still a substantial minority of gastroenterologists in the United States that don't even have access to that kind of resource. And then um, it's also important to recognize that that proportion for GI psychologists, the proportion of gastroenterologists that have access to GI psychologists is much lower than that, much lower than 60%. So, you know, again, I think gastroenterologists buy into this concept. They just don't know how to implement it and offer it to their patients in real life. You know, as you know, just last week I contacted you to find a dietitian. So right. access is is very limited right now. I mean, Rome Foundation has the gastrocyte group with uh, over four hundred uh, mental health practitioners, but not everybody knows about it. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we need to find ways to do that. Uh, so why don't we move on to what is integrated care, and then the digital health. And how do we find those solutions? Yeah, so integrated care is the concept of employing nutrition services and behavioral health services side by side with medical services. So, and the key to integrated care is it's not just multidisciplinary care, it's collaborative team-based care where those providers work together to come up with a personalized plan for each individual patient. Uh, and you, as you can imagine, that, that does take some planning um, and uh, this accessibility of the providers to one another and a willingness to, to share their records and to, to be open to suggestions from the other disciplines that are part of this multidisciplinary group. Um, but the cool thing about integrated care now is 
there is actually evidence from Australia to suggest that integrated care leads to better outcomes than does traditional GI care. So just to give you some numbers in this so-called mantra study from Melbourne, Australia, led by Michael Cam and colleagues, 84% of patients with a wide range of functional GI disorders, turned out that around 60% had IBS, but a wide range of functional GI disorders uh, responded to the responded in the integrated care group. And that compared to around 50 some odd percent, 57%, I think, um, in the traditional GI uh, group. So both groups actually did pretty well. 57% isn't bad, but 84% is a whole lot better. Um, and and uh, so there is now evidence to suggest that it leads to better outcomes. And that study also found that the cost per, cost per cure, po- cost per positive outcome was actually reduced by the integrated care arm. So um, very interesting persuasive evidence clearly needs to be replicated in other parts of the world because what might, might be true in Australia may not necessarily be true in the United States. I mean, let's be honest, our, our incentives are completely different, differently aligned in the United States than they are in Australia. But it should, I hope, serve as um, the fertilizer to um, to plant a lot of seeds in terms of um, seeing whether or not integrated care truly is uh, better than traditional GI care in other parts of the world outside of Australia. Well, then, then moving to the last point, um, how will digital health make this available to many practitioners who just aren't at medical centers? Yeah. Yeah, and this is maybe the the most exciting development in my opinion, because we've had mounting evidence that this is a a better way to care for patients. We've had really um, mounting buy-in on a part of clinicians that it, it is in fact true, but we've had no way to really deploy this in the field. And, you know, you think about the good and bad of the pandemic. Well, the, there's lots and lots of bad, which we could all name. But one of the good things about the pandemic has been the rapid adoption of, of telehealth and virtual care. Um, you know, if you look at surveys that have been done, not just in GI, but all disciplines of medicine, not only did every discipline of medicine rapidly ramp up to use telehealth as opposed to face-to-face visits. Uh, in fact, you know, at University of Michigan, 100% of our visits outside of the emergency department were virtual. Um, but now we're going, as, a, as an enterprise, we're gonna be shooting for about 50 to 60% virtual visits going forward. Okay, so this is here to stay. It's not gonna change. And many patients uh, actually prefer it for a whole wide range of reasons. Um, and if you think about, the accessibility issues. Let's say for, for the sake of argument that you're a gastroenterologist in a rural community and you need to send your patient to the academic medical center, which is three hours away um, to be able to get integrated services. Um, you know, on the, get, getting access to behavioral health services or nutrition related services virtually either through face-to-face interaction via telehealth or through mobile app-based teaching tools um, 
completely swings the door open in terms of access to integrated care in a way that none of us could even even have imagined two years ago before the pandemic. I mean, so one of the silver linings of the pandemic is opening our eyes to what is going to be possible in regards to doing things via telehealth or via mobile applications. Um, so, uh, and, and there are lots of things that are already available. So like in the behavioral health space, very interesting, you know, there, there are now multiple apps that mobile apps that can offer different types of behavioral therapy um, for patients with IBS, specifically for IBS. So for example, uh, there is now an FDA approved um, cognitive behavioral therapy intervention specifically for patients with IBS uh, called Mahana IBS. Um, there's also a specific mobile app that offers gut-directed hypnotherapy um, from Simone Peters and Monash University called Nerva. Um, and, um, and, and then there's another cognitive behavioral therapy, not FDA approved, but um, just more patient-facing called Zemedy. So these are all you know, immediately available for um, a cost for sure, but a relatively nominal fee. Um, and then there are also mobile applications like the Monash University Low FODMAP app. Uh, they can provide information about FODMAP content and foods, which can be very useful for people starting the, um, the, the low FODMAP diet. And there are even mobile apps now that can allow you to track your GI symptoms. Um, uh, we actually developed an app that could do that many, many years ago. We were, one of, we were the first mobile app to, to be able to do that. But the subsequent generations by other inventors um, have actually really built on that tremendously. So for example, there are mobile apps like Dieta or Carta that allow you to track what you're eating. So it allows you to take pictures of what of your meals and then annotate the pictures with text to, so you can keep track of what you're eating, what your symptoms were in association with that meal and take pictures of your bowel movements to objectively track what's happening with your stool frequency and consistency before and after an intervention. So think about how those things are gonna change the way we deliver care. Think about our ability to be able to objectively judge whether something has worked or not um, going forward. So, uh, and then when you think about all the at-home diagnostics, uh, so things like breath testing, various um, uh, genetic tests with buccal smears. There are a whole wide range now of things uh, that we can, we can do at home. Patients don't even need to come into the hospital. And that list of tests is going to rapidly grow. So when you think about the richness of the ecosystem that's now available in the digital health space, symptom trackers, stool trackers, diet trackers, um, mobile applications that can help you to implement diet therapy or behavioral health strategies, um, the at-home companies that allow you to do at-home um, testing. And then finally, the sort of king of the hill, the full stack um, integrated health solution, virtual integrated health solutions, like, like for example, a, a company that I work with, GI On Demand, that's co-owned by the American College of Gastroenterology, um, and also um, uh, like Oshi Health, which um, are 
Oshi and GI and demand are sort of coming at this from slightly different angles, but from the bottom line, for example, for a patient is that regardless of which of those services you're interested in, you can access those through these platforms. So um, really the sky's the limit in terms of the solutions, their accessibility and where and what what the limit is on what we're going to be able to do going forward. It's really it's quite mind boggling. It, it's super exciting. It's a little bit scary in some ways. Uh, but to me, it's it literally is what gets me up in the morning and makes me feel so excited about what I'm doing, because um, I think it's so easy for particularly gastroenterologists to feel so downtrodden by all of the things that are confronting the medical field, the EMR, and less time to see for each patient, and all the documentation, and the in-basket, all, all on and on and on. If you can get by that and see what's happening, um, you know, I think you'll feel you'll feel reinvigorated and excited about where we're going as a, as a profession. Well, after hearing that and knowing you, I, I think your energy around this, your enthusiasm is actually starting to drive the field. I think as you get out there, I think we're starting to see the influence of of your view on this developing. Uh, So compliment to you. Uh, you. Another point, uh, a question I have is where are the data now to look at comparative efficacy to Mm -hmm. traditional methods? Is it in the works? Are there any existing data? Yeah, there's actually quite a bit of data, and there are a lot of studies going on. Um, So, for example, that uh, gut-directed hypnotherapy mobile application, uh, they did a study looking at face-to-face hypnotherapy, finding basically the same same outcomes. Uh, And then um, uh, some of the CBT apps have also done actually pretty large randomized controlled trials at this point comparative effectiveness that have shown similar outcomes. And then you're very familiar, Doug, with Jeff Lackner's study on minimal CBT versus um, full service face-to-face CBT, you know, and showing that if anything, the minimal contact CBT, so one face-to-face session and all the rest online, not only did as well, maybe even did a little bit better than um, the face-to-face CBT. So there's lots of evidence to suggest that this is not only more convenient, but it works just as well. So maybe the last question is, where should the practitioner, the gastroenterologist in practice go to get this started for their practice? Where, yeah. where can they, what resources can they use? Um, right, right now, I think a good one-stop shop um, still in evolution, but I, I think um, very soon within this, probably by, by the end of next year, certainly, and maybe even toward, towards the middle of next year, um, GI On Demand will offer solutions for the diet piece, for the behavioral health piece, um, and also um, uh, allow comprehensive education that's from the ACG. So um, you know, I think the idea that behind GI on demand, which is pretty cool, is to not only provide face-to-face consultative services, which is going to be, again, hard to scale, even virtually, um, but to carefully vet the digital options that are available and choose the best to make available through GI on demand. 
So the idea, at least as I see it, it turns out I'm, I'm the person that is helping them to shape their strategy in terms of diet and behavioral health. Um, the idea is to be a curator for the best applications for the practicing gastroenterologist so that they can better care for their patients. Um, and, uh, you know, that will, will be starting to make those services available on the platform uh, very soon. And I guess the apps are available now. Yes, absolutely. The mobile apps are absolutely available now. Well, thank you for this really enlightening discussion. Very helpful. Hope it's helpful to the audience. Uh, Johanna, any questions you have? I have no questions, but I do know that access is always a barrier to these sorts of therapeutics for patients. And, you know, um, Bill, you mentioned that the gastroenterologists have bought into this idea that these therapies are just as effective. And I think patients are also buying into that. But again, access is key. So if they, as you mentioned, if they can't make a three or four hour trip to their academic medical center to receive CBT therapy or see a GI dietitian, that's where they get frustrated. And, and then that's where that the, the symptoms just continue in this circular motion. Um, so this access with, with virtual health, with the apps that are now available um, are, is really exciting, I think, for patients. And I've, I use Emity personally. I think it's fantastic. Um, I love the idea of Mahana's group, uh, IBS's um, platform. And I think there's a lot of potential growth for these types of apps for patients. And um, it's very exciting. This is really exciting for the patient area too. I think patients are getting, finally feeling like they're being recognized, their voices are being heard, and they have some really viable options to manage their symptoms. So thank you. Oh, my pleasure. And I, I couldn't agree more with all, all of your comments. Uh, it's, um, again, a really exciting time. And really, it, it, the, the limits in terms of what we're going to be able to do is are going to be only bound by our own imaginations. I mean, I know that sounds almost corny, but it's the truth. It really is. Um, it's a remarkable time because the technology will allow us to bring to life virtually anything we can, we can dream up. So um, again, I think for everybody out there, dream big and um, uh, you know, and the sky's the limit in terms of what we can do together. Well, thank you for that presentation and for what you do. We really appreciate it. Yeah. If you have any questions for Dr. Che, please let us know. We'll pass those along and get those answers for you as usual. Until next time, everyone, stay safe and we'll see you again real soon. Bye-bye now. Bye, everybody. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Gut Feelings, a Rome Foundation Drossman Care podcast series. Find more helpful tips, downloadable resources, videos, and more on our website at theromefoundation.org. Look under the resource tab for our patient Q&A videos, Gut Feelings blog, articles, and more. Have you purchased your copy of Gut Feelings, Disorders of Gut-Brain Interaction and the Patient-Provider Relationship book yet? Be sure to find that on the Rome Foundation website and place your order. Or